Church, if you could please open up to the book of Micah, the book of Micah in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. It might be a little bit harder to come by. If you have to use your table of contents, that's okay. Right after the book of Jonah, which will also be short, and right before Nahum. As you turn to Micah, Christmas time obviously is upon us. It is a time of rejoicing and singing. But why? We have two children, and one question we have learned to appreciate sometimes and then eventually just grin and bear is the question, why? Dad, why? And finally, you just want to say, because I said, <laughs> like, stop asking. But why? Why do we sing and rejoice during this time? Well, because Christ was born. Okay. That doesn't really answer why we rejoice. That just tells us what happened. So why rejoice? Babies are born every day. Well, but this is Jesus. This is the Son of God. Okay, I'm still going to ask the same question. Why rejoice? I understand who Jesus is. Why rejoice? Rejoicing implies a reason to rejoice. Simply saying Jesus is the reason for the season. As catchy as that is, it doesn't really give us a reason to rejoice, does it? It just tells us that we ought to. But there is a reason for our rejoicing. And to see that reason on full display, we will be turning to the book of Micah over the next several weeks. Here's our main idea this morning. God's perfect judgment only makes sense when viewed in conjunction with God's perfect character. God's perfect judgment only makes sense when viewed in conjunction with God's perfect character. Micah is a minor prophet. His name means who is like Jehovah, who is like God. He's a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. They prophesied around the same time. And if you read the book of Isaiah, which is much, much longer, you will notice several similar phrases and ideas between the two. He prophesied in the southern kingdom of Judah. We'll talk about that in a moment. And he predicted the fall of the northern kingdom. And he almost witnessed the fall of the southern kingdom as well. But as we're going to see over the next several weeks, he tells of another coming event. For now, we're just going to begin this powerful book in chapter 1. So hopefully you have found Micah. I'm going to ask everyone to stand together for the reading of God's holy word. Just a physical posture of what ought to be the state of our hearts before God. Here is God's word for us, Micah chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you, peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? 
What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It is reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all. In Bethlehaphra, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marishah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. For the children of your delight, make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you who have inspired every word in the scriptures, would you now speak these words like a bullet into our hearts? Fire them deep within us that it might bear fruit, leading us to rejoicing in righteousness. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. In our passage this morning, I've divided our text into three parts that will kind of guide our time together. The title of this sermon this morning is kind of a playoff of Micah's name, Who is Like Jehovah? Who is Like Our Holy God? So this morning we will see Number one, holy transcendence. Number two, hopeless transgression. And number three, honest transparency. Holy transcendence, Micah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. As I've quoted before, A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, What comes to mind when someone thinks about God is the most important thing about that person. What do you think of when you hear the name God? Many in America today profess God, and we mistakenly look at that and assume they're all Christian, but they're not. What is God like fundamentally? Is he nice? Is he loving? Is he forgiving? Is he vengeful or cruel? Is he removed from us? Is he boring? Is he fascinating? Is he evil? Is he good? Is he righteous? Is he unjust? Is he arbitrary? 
To answer this question, how we answer it matters. And importantly, how one chooses to answer this question will have a profound impact upon a person's entire life. If we believe that God rewards acts of terror done in his name, what are we going to do? We see that at play around the world. If we believe that God does not exist, what will we do? We see that at play even in our own country daily, living any way that we choose. If we exaggerate any of God's attributes at the expense of any of the others, we have a warped view of God that will result in a warped view of life. For example, many exaggerate God's love at the expense of his holiness or vice versa. Many exaggerate God's imminence, that is his nearness to us, at the expense of his transcendence, that is his holiness, his removal from us, his being high above us, and vice versa. We are especially tempted to do this at Christmas time because as we sang this morning, Emmanuel means what? God with us. He is near to us. We must learn to keep all of the attributes of God in focus any time we seek to understand who he is or why he does what he does. It isn't that God is sometimes loving and then sometimes holy, and then sometimes patient, and then sometimes wise. God is always all of those things anytime he ever does anything. All of God's attributes apply to all of his actions all the time. God is never suddenly not what he has always been. He never ceases to be what he was from the beginning of time and then what he will be far into the future. For this reason, our view of God suffers when we neglect a balanced study of God in his word. As Christians, we love reading about Jesus, don't we? I do. I love reading about Jesus, his wisdom, his discernment, his insight, his talked into a corner and he asks simple questions and gets his way out of it and leaves everyone just, I mean, just dumbstruck. How, how can this man do this? It's fascinating. We love reading about the love and kindness and forgiveness of God in the New Testament. But then when it comes to the anger or wrath or holiness of God in the Old Testament that we read about in the law and the prophets, we kind of get uneasy. Don't talk about that too much. This is Christmas time. Easy. What happens is that, whether we're aware of it or not, we often neglect certain Old Testament books, basically stunting our growth in our knowledge of God. It's almost like it's always time for dessert, but never dinner. We just want what's palatable. Certainly, Micah had a message for Israel that did not seem palatable, and it's important for us. We must be sure to never forget that the God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. And the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. 
when we celebrate Jesus, God taking on flesh, when we say God, we are referring to this same God in the Old Testament. He has not changed. This morning, we see a wonderful yet terrifying picture of the transcendence of God. God's transcendence is his being above us, on another level. He is removed from us. It's the opposite of descending. It is being transcendent. It's similar to his holiness, as I described it earlier. To be holy is to be set apart. So God is set apart from us to a place that we cannot reach. We can never hope to be there on our own. This is the image of God that we get here from Micah chapter 1. Notice in verse 1 here. The word of the Lord comes to Micah in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So God has given a vision to Micah, and what is this vision? Beginning in verse 2. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. The Lord in his holy temple, in verse 3, is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. When he comes out, why is it that he has to come down? It is because he is exalted. He is transcendent. He must come out and then descend to people here. And when he does come down, he's going to tread. He's going to walk upon the high places of the earth. This is not intended to be like, oh, look at what God is doing. This is intended to be a terrifying thing. All of these wonderful marvels on the earth will be trampled underfoot by God when he comes down. It is a frightening picture. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. It's as though to God all the nations of the earth are like a little bit of dirt on the scale that you have to wipe away so that it gets rebalanced. In verse 17, just two verses later, it says, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. You've heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world, surely. You've seen pictures of them. Maybe you've even been able to go and see something like the great pyramids in Egypt. As beautiful and as mighty as these works are, they are nothing but tiny ant mounds before the Lord who is just walking through the yard. And at any moment, he can just crush them underfoot. This is our holy, transcendent God. But the poetic description doesn't end with his transcendence. It also brushes his holiness. In verse 4 here, It says the valleys will split open. The mountains will melt under him. He splits the earth open almost like you would crack an egg in half. He melts the mountains like you would take a hot butter knife and just set it on butter and just watch it just glide down and split it in half. 
Nothing can exist in God's holy presence. What happens? He continues the imagery here, like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. What happens if you throw a candle in a fireplace? It's going to melt. It will not be a candle anymore. What happens with a little mound of sand that you take a cup full of water and hold it high up and just pour it and just let it pound the sand? It's going to go everywhere. This is what God's coming down is going to be like. One contemporary music artist put it this way. We're like fire and ice. Only one can survive. The bad news is we aren't the fire. We aren't the fire. All throughout Scripture, God is associated with fire. His presence in the burning bush, the flaming pillar that walked Israel through the wilderness, God's judgment often being described in images of fire. When anything impure enters into that presence, what happens? It is eradicated. And this is why anytime in Scripture when someone comes before God, Isaiah chapter 6, he comes before God and he doesn't say, oh God, this is nice, I'm looking forward to being here with you. Like we read in popular testimony today, that's not what we see. He's terrified. He falls on his face and says, I did, uh, I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me because I have seen God. He knows he's going to die because he is in the presence of a holy, consuming fire, the God of the universe. It is this God who commands us in Scripture. And when we violate his commands, it is this God that we are transgressing. When we knowingly sin, this is the God we are looking at when we sin. And we say, no. I don't care what you say, God. This is who we rebel against. We were helping with VBS decorations at our previous church, and someone brought a hot knife up to the church. I'd never seen one. We had some big foam boards we were trying to cut through, and we're taking knives and, like, sawing through it. And I said, well, here, try this. And so we plugged it up, and that thing gets super hot, and we just could set it on top of that, and I didn't even have to push down. It just melted down, and you could see the edges of that just peeling away as it just melts down through that foam. The hot knife cut through with zero resistance. And when we sin against this God, there will be zero resistance to his judgment. He melts the mountains. Who are you to think you can stand before him? You can't. And neither can I. Because we serve a holy God. As Christians, we rejoice that this God that we're reading about here doesn't just immediately judge us. And he could. He could come down right now in a moment and instantly judge the entire world, but he doesn't. Rather, he delays his judgment so that he might have mercy on those who trust in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. He delays 
But just because he delays does not mean that he has suddenly changed from being this kind of God to suddenly a new kind of God in the New Testament. He is still the same, even after we're born again. Even once you're a Christian and you profess faith in Christ and you sin as a Christian, you are still sinning against this God. Even though you're forgiven, he hasn't changed. He's still the God who melts mountains. Do you think of God in this light as you sin, or do you think about the forgiving nature of God only? When you sin, are you moved to pieces, or do you fall back on, good thing I'm a Christian? It's okay, I'm forgiven. When you take that lustful, forbidden look, do you remember what God has commanded you? What kind of God? When you say those forbidden words, do you remember this God? When you make those forbidden plans, the imminence, the nearness of Jesus does not negate the transcendence and holiness of God. That's number one, holy transcendence. Number two, hopeless transgression. We see this image of God in verses one through four, but then it picks up in verse five. All this, the whole description we just read, is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So after highlighting God's holy transcendence, Micah goes right into the utter hopelessness of Israel who has transgressed this holy God. Why is God coming out of his holy temple, descending from his high place upon the earth, melting the mountains and cracking the earth open? Why is he coming down this way? Because of transgression. Israel has transgressed this holy God. Now here, it's helpful for us to remember that in the history of Israel, Israel divides into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel, the southern kingdom is called Judah. Well, the capitals of those, respectively, the northern kingdom of Israel's capital is Samaria, and the southern kingdom's, Judah's capital, is Jerusalem. So as you read the prophets, you're going to see references to Judah and to Israel. They're talking about prophecies to these two nations who will both be judged. One in about 722 B.C., the other in about 586. One by the Assyrians, the other by the Babylonians. All because of sin. The prophets in the Old Testament are foretelling that before it happens. And a lot of times they're prophesying in a prosperous time for Israel and Judah. This is Micah's case. Everything is going well. And we're going to see next week that the people even come to him and say, Why do you preach this way? There's no judgment that's coming. Look how good everything is. It's fine. Preach something else. We'll see that next week in chapter 2. So in verse 5, these names come up, Jerusalem and Samaria. That's the southern and northern kingdom, respectively. 
And this first description that follows, all the way through verse 7, describes the northern kingdom by reference to Samaria. If you'll notice, Micah's prophecy here, he refers to in verse 5, the transgression of Jacob, is it not Samaria? The high place of Judah, is it not Jerusalem? That phrase, high place, should sound familiar. If you look back into the beginning of the chapter, we read that the Lord would come and and tread upon the high places of the earth in verse 3. So now he's coming down to tread upon, to trample Israel and Judah in judgment. In verse 6, Israel's buildings will be torn down. The stones will be cast away. In verse 7, we see the source of God's wrath. Israel's transgression, idolatry. And God will destroy these idols as he destroys Israel in judgment. God means business. And we see that here in their hopeless state. In verse 9, Israel's transgression is described as a wound, but the wound is incurable. There is no hope. And then sadly we see the incurable wound comes to Judah, who falls prey to the exact same idolatry that has earned judgment for Israel. It's hopeless. So much so that in verse 8, look at Micah's response. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. This saying here of mourning like the jackals and the ostriches is also used in Job chapter 30 verse 29 to describe his mourning. You don't have to understand why they use those desert animals like that to understand the point that he's making here. We may not use that phrase, but they obviously do. Here's what it means. He is distraught in mourning and wailing over their sin. And here's the tragedy. Even though Micah is in intense mourning, Israel and Judah are not. They are not. Micah is lamenting and begging them to turn back from their sin. And they're saying, preach something else to us. We don't want to hear this. Israel's situation is only hopeless because she will not acknowledge it. And this is why the wound is incurable. It's not that sin is incurable. Sin is curable. Do you know what the cure of sin is? Jesus Christ. Sin has a cure. And that cure has a name. Jesus. That's why we rejoice at Christmas time. The cure is finally here. This image of God that we read about. When God comes down, it will melt your face off. But then, guess what? God does come down at Christmas time. And what happens? It's not this image we see. Not yet. It's grace and mercy, salvation from sin. This is why we rejoice. God has come down, and I'm still alive. I'm rejoicing. Salvation is here. But there will be a future day of judgment, and God will come down. And it will not be a time of rejoicing like Christmas time is right now. 
And it is only when we acknowledge our sin that we can be saved from it by repenting and trusting in Jesus through faith. So then why is this wound incurable? Because Israel will not repent. She will not acknowledge her crime. Failure to acknowledge our sin is like begging for misery instead of mercy. You have two choices. Misery or mercy? Which one do you want? I'll take misery. Who thinks like that? I don't. (laughs) I don't either. That doesn't make any sense, does it? You have two choices. Which one do you want? I'll take misery. We don't think that way. But when we fail to acknowledge our sin, that's what we're doing. When we fail to be corrected, that's what we're doing. Don't talk to me about that. I'd rather suffer. I don't want mercy. We're begging for it. The reason that we struggle in the workplace is because of unacknowledged sin. The reason that we struggle in our marriages is because of unacknowledged sin. I got a phone call just the other day, not from someone here, having a hard time in their marriage. And you listen to one side and they say, well, this other person just does this, 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 this. You listen to the other side, well, they just do this, 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 this. I've had a conversation with this couple many times over several, several years. And it's the same thing over and over. I'll tell you why. Neither acknowledges their sin. So what do you expect to have happen? You're going to keep getting the same thing over and over. This is why our churches die. We notice the sin in others either among us or even those outside the church, before we acknowledge it within ourselves. And then we struggle and we wonder, why is this happening to our church? So the church dies. This is why homes break down. We fail to acknowledge the sin of parents and how they raise their children, or children and how they respond to their parents, or siblings and their relationships with one another. It's ignored, and it continues to rot the foundation. When sin is unacknowledged, it will not be confessed. And when it won't be confessed, it won't be abandoned. And when it won't be abandoned, it will keep producing rotten fruit and decay until there is nothing left but a shell on the outside. And all it's going to take is one storm to roll through, and that house will collapse. That's how sin works. Sweeping sin under the rug and just expecting it to go away is like regularly prepping raw chicken on a glass plate, wiping the plate with a dry paper towel when you're done, and then eating your meal on it every day. It looks clean. You wiped it. But if you don't acknowledge the bacteria and respond accordingly, you will get violently sick. We should expect that. But that's what we do with our sin. We sweep it away and and kind of surface clean. Everything's okay. But our situation is hopeless because we do not acknowledge and respond. And don't miss this. Both are necessary. It's not enough to just acknowledge a problem and then not respond accordingly. And you cannot respond accordingly without acknowledging your problem. You need both. Or else your situation, just like Israel, is hopeless God's people are not immune to blindness when it comes to spotting our sin. We must be diligent 
in our pursuit of holiness and open ourselves up to one another so that our sin might be acknowledged and dealt with. This is the only way to escape our hopeless situation. So hopeless transgression, number three, honest transparency. Following Micah's mourning on Israel's behalf, he begins to name various cities and the judgment that awaits them. He says here that her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people. And then he begins in verse 10, all the way through verse 15, naming these locations. Now, we don't know exactly where each of these cities are. We know where many of them were, but the exact location of some are unknown to us. The good news is, that's not the point of this text. We don't have to know exactly where all these cities were to appreciate what he's doing here. The names and descriptions are what's important. It's as though these specific cities, though they don't include all of Judah and Israel, though they don't include all of it, these were chosen specifically on purpose. Just like if judgment were to come to Louisiana, I might not mention every single city or town or even every single parish, but I might highlight certain ones in my judgment of all of them. We see the same thing here. Each city is intentionally chosen for different word plays. Starting here in verse 10. Beth Afra means house of dust. And they are told to roll in the dust. Shafir means beauty. But they are told to leave in nakedness and shame. Zanan means exit. But they're told do not leave. Bethizel means house on the side, or it can mean nearby house. And they're close to Zanan, but even though they're nearby, she will not offer any support. It will be removed. Maroth means bitterness, and she will wait anxiously for good and just wait and hope that it comes. And guess what? There is no good coming. It's bitter. Jerusalem means city of peace. And then we see that she will receive disaster. Lakish, though not a wordplay, was well known as a military center. And the sin in Israel, we're told in our passage, originally takes root here before it spreads out. So Lakish is told, ready your chariots, get your horses together, prepare to fight a battle you're never going to win. Morasheth Gath means something like gaining or acquisition, and she will receive a gift from Lachish, chains and judgment. Akzib is from the word meaning lie, deception, and she will deceive Israel, providing no help for the coming judgment. I'll help you, but it doesn't work. And finally, Marishah is from the word meaning conqueror, but she will be conquered. Now, this list to us are just random names of cities. But to Israel, this would be a very personal list. Imagine that instead of these cities, I'm saying Trout, Nebo, Allah, oh, and finally, Gina. You have friends and family in these places, and you're hearing these descriptions. It should melt you to pieces. Israel would have felt this way. 
And the icing on the cake would be in verse 10 and verse 15, these bookends here. In verse 10, it says, tell it not in Gath. And then in verse 15, it says, the glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. These are references from 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel 1.20, tell it not in Gath was the phrase that David used to mourn the death of Saul and Jonathan. He's using it to say Israel is embarrassed before her enemies. Israel has fallen. Tell it not in Gath. And in 1 Samuel 22, Adullam is where David hid in a cave in fear and shame and embarrassment from his enemies. And they joke about, isn't this David who slayed the thousands? But he's acting like a crazy man. And they cast him out and he runs and hides in a cave. The cave is here in Adullam. So what God is telling Israel and Judah through the prophet Micah, he is being as open and honest and transparent as he can be about what is to come if they do not repent. The judgment will be harsh and severe. It will be widespread, yet it will be deserved. The judgment will be appropriate for each individual. You exalt your city because you think that you're this. Well, I'm going to show you what you really are and what you really deserve. And don't we do the same thing? It's almost like the city names expose their idolatry. What is Lakish hope in? Their military support. Well, I'll get rid of that real quick. What about Zanon? What's their hope? Well, this little side city over here is supposed to come support, but I'll take that away too. What do you hope in? And when I judge you, I will make sure you know that cannot deliver you. What do we hope in? Who are we in Gina or even in First Baptist Church? And this is the case with almost every First Baptist Church. We have a reputation to uphold. Well, I will tell you what. Reputations make terrible idols. They make terrible idols. All they do is cast your eyes to the past and keep you from seeing what God wants you to do. And make no mistake, the same God here in Micah is the same God that exists today. And the judgment is always deserved. God's openness and honest transparency with us beckons us to respond in kind. So why don't we? Why aren't we open and honest and transparent? Well, sometimes it's pride. Sometimes it's embarrassment. Sometimes it's just ignorance. We just don't know. And ironically, God's judgment will tear down our pride. It will embarrass us. And it will shame us as other foolish men receive mercy. In verse 16, we have this final image of Jerusalem being told to mourn as she watches all of her children experiencing judgment. Judah would have to sit by and watch in 722 as Israel is destroyed and then taken up to Assyria in captivity. They would have to watch that. And it would happen to them over a century later. This imagery here in verse 16 where Israel is this bird. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle. You think about an eagle and her children in the book of Matthew, this similar imagery comes up. Matthew 23, 37 through 39. Slightly different, but listen to the words of Jesus. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. 
How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The imagery of Jesus here is very similar to the imagery here in Micah. Jesus reveals his true desire. We see this transparency one more time. This God who melts the mountains when he comes down desires to gather his people. He desires to gather us together. That's his true desire. Why does he not do that to Israel? Jesus tells us, you were not willing. All who are willing to turn to Jesus can and will be saved from the bondage of sin and forgiven of sin's penalty forever. All who do so. But it takes open, honest transparency before anyone can make such an admission. We have to get rid of our pride and our humiliation. It's the same with sin in our families. We have to be open and honest and transparent. I've had to tell my wife before, many times, more times than I would like to admit, I'm sorry. I overreacted. I shouldn't have spoken to you that way. I've had to tell my children before, I'm sorry. I overreacted. I shouldn't have spoken to you that way. I usually follow it up with, but I do have a point. <laughs> but we have to acknowledge our sin in our families or what's going to happen to our family. It will rot. In our churches, we have to be open and honest and transparent about our sin. In our nation, we are ignoring some of our most glaring issues as a nation. And what's happening? We're eating ourselves alive from the inside out. Our workplaces, our marriages, Jesus desires to gather and give life. We must acknowledge and accept what we are so tempted to ignore so that we can become what God intends for us to be. So why do we rejoice at Christmas time? Because we didn't get what we deserved. God came down at Christmas time. God came down. But we didn't see verses 2 through 4. Not yet. We didn't see the melting mountains and the earth cracking open in judgment. We saw a God who took on flesh and his body was cracked. And his blood was poured out for us. He took this judgment of God in our place so that all who were open and transparent about their sin to the Lord will be forgiven and saved. This is why we rejoice at Christmas time. Because our God is holy and transcendent, but he is also imminent and loving. Church, may we, in light of who God is, humble ourselves, acknowledge our sin, and accept our condition, so that we might be led to humble transparency before one another and before God Almighty, so that the power of Jesus might heal wounds that are otherwise incurable. Let's pray. Lord God, as we turn in your word to the book of Micah, we thank you.
for the boldness of this prophet who weeps and laments for his countrymen, who mourns over the coming judgment in her current sinful state. We thank you for filling him with boldness to stand and to speak out, to give a clear picture, Lord, of who you are as he recounts these visions that you sent to him. Lord, would you help us not to forget what type of God you are, whether through negligence in our study of you or through intentional avoidance of thinking of these traits of yours. Lord, it is your very character that makes your judgment so perfect and that makes your mercy so sweet. Remind us continually, Lord, that there is not a God like you and that that is reason for us to rejoice. Lord, so that we might rejoice, would you right now in this very moment in time lay our hearts bare open before us? Expose to us, Lord, the sin that we have refused to acknowledge before it rots us out or our families out or our marriages out or our churches out or our workplace out anymore. Help us to acknowledge our sin, Lord, that we might confess it and abandon it. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.